Hey, thanks for tuning in to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, Yoni Rosenblatt. Awesome conversation today with Dr. Christy Chiesa. You're going to get a lot of specifics on concussion management, concussion rehabilitation, concussion evaluation. I encourage you to really take some notes maybe while listening to this so that you can go back and dive into some of those specifics and make it a part of your practice. This is a niche patient presentation that takes some study and practice to get good at helping and rehabilitating those patients and athletes to their fullest, but you're going to get a ton of pearls of wisdom from Dr. Chiesa. She's really become an expert in this very specific pathology. So I encourage, as always, feedback following the podcast. You can reach us at pod at truesportspt.com and really buckle up for a great, great conversation. Welcome to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. We got Dr. Christy Chiesa with us. She's going to tell us about all things concussion. Before she tells about all things concussion, she's going to tell us about herself. And this time, we're all going to be listening because now I hit record on the podcast, okay? <laughs> Perfect. Um, perfect. Right. Just so this is this is as true a sports physical therapy podcast as you can get because we're not even going to edit that out. Perfect. Um, perfect. Rarely do we do things perfectly here. So before you tell us about concussion, tell us about you. Um, tell all the sports PTs listening how you got to where you are today. Gotcha. So I'm Christy Kiesa. I'm from Pittsburgh. Um, grew up playing sports. Uh, went to Central Michigan University where I played soccer. Unfortunately, growing up, also had a lot of injuries, so that's what made me want to be a PT very early in life. From Central Michigan, after completing my undergraduate work there, I came back to the University of Pittsburgh and did my Doctor of Physical Therapy program, and following that, was fortunate enough to be able to do a sports residency where I did that with Massachusetts General Hospital and Northeastern University, who had an association together. Now, okay. not to be confused with Harvard. No, no. It's totally different. Different, different. Is there a Harvard PT school? No, I do not believe so. So let's just say you went to Harvard. Okay, yeah. Mass General, go ahead. <laughs> I did have a Harvard email. There we go. Um, but so while I was there, I got to work with a good amount of professional athletes as well as just D1 college athletes in addition to a lot of the people at the sports medicine program. So following there, I knew that I didn't necessarily want to be with a particular sports team, but I still... I definitely didn't want to work with just a general ortho population. So once I had a mentor reach out to me um, and I learned more about this area, despite the fact that it's in Baltimore and I'm from Pittsburgh, it seems like a great opportunity for me to work with some of the high level athletes, still professional, but also like the youth level and weekend warriors and also having that interdisciplinary um, approach since we have a lot of strength and conditioning coaches but throughout my time during my grad work and in the sports residency is when I also got introduced to concussion PT. So since then, I've really tried to make sure that I've been developing that as well as my knowledge on the orthopedic sports injuries. Yeah, it's been, it's been really awesome to, to watch you develop that expertise and to learn from you um, as it pertains to concussion. Small sidebar, you know, when I look to add outstanding sports PTs to our team, the first thing I do is turn to my network, and that's something we talk a lot about on the podcast is developing your network, developing those strong relationships. Um, I reached out to PTs who have been through True Sports and moved on to some awesome opportunities, um, as well as to current PTs, and one of them um, is Dr. Tim Mahan, who's been on the pod a number of times, um, ran a residency himself, and now he's, he's really head of sports science, essentially, at Rutgers Football, and I said, who do you got? I need a great PT and he reaches out to his network and I get your resume. Um, and so as soon as I jumped on the phone with you, we had a great conversation um, and it was really immediately a collegial conversation. I really appreciated that because you were really quick to just drop how terrible Baltimore is at football <laughs> and, and still had, being from Pittsburgh. I just, I had to, I had when I heard what? Baltimore, I was like, oh, no. It's crazy oh, no. that you say you had to because it was a job interview, Kiesa. It's true. I'm to um, be honest. Yes, you were very honest. You told me I mispronounced <laughs> your name like a million times um, in the phone call. Um, but despite all those things, I think that's just worthwhile highlighting is that the reason 
you kind of joined our team or that I was super interested in bringing you on was really your ability to connect quickly and speak so passionately about things like concussion. So really excited to have you with us. Let's dive right in. Walk me through your evaluation when a concussion patient walks in the door. So very extensive process when you have a concussion first presenting a huge part. I mean, it could end up being the entire evaluation is the past medical history and the subjective. I often tell people, especially those who start to treat, I feel like they bring that up in referral to orthopedic injuries. I know I've had some professors say, you know, some people, all you have to do is ask them questions and that'll tell you what it is. Um, maybe that's true for some, but it's particularly true with concussions. All someone has to do is come in, tell me the mechanism of injury, some of the immediate and prolonged symptoms, talk to me about things that bother them. Uh, very important to learn about if they got imaging, if they gotten certain things cleared, but just listening to their story, and there's so many components, including the psychological and the emotional component. You know, there's different subgroups of concussion, and I'm constantly trying to put that person in different groups. One is rarely in just one group, and the psychological and the behavioral piece is huge. So that ends up being a big part of me just getting intake from them. A lot of times after that subjective, assuming that the red flags and all of that have been cleared, I can immediately give that person exercises without even doing a more formal exam. But if I'm able to get through everything, normally it's the past medical history, just generally observing them, having like a flattened affect or monotone pupil dilation, just different head tilts and asymmetries. Then going into, again, the current symptoms that they're experiencing, things like, again, if I want to clear out the cranial nerves and the bigger details neuro-wise, then going into making sure the cervical spine is clear, thinking about the C-spine rules, I often tell people a big mistake that people make is assuming that because that person went to the ER, because they saw a doctor, that that automatically means that they're clear of things like cervical instability. But if anyone remembers in school, that C1, C2 instability, that can only be seen with an open mouth x-ray, right? So they could get imaging, but a lot of times it's not that open mouth x-ray. So asking those questions, especially with people who come in after a car accident or after getting you know, head-butted going up for a header in soccer, making sure that all those bases are clear and asking about questions such as head heaviness and debilitating headaches. I had a person at one point who got hit almost head on, went to the ER, had a bunch of different testing, came to me, then I'm, I'm talking to her, and as we're talking, my spidey senses were kind of tingling, especially when she talked about this feeling of head heaviness, like her head was going to fall off her body. So immediately I do a sharp purser, and I didn't feel a clunk, but she literally looked at me and said, I feel like my head is where it's supposed to be, right? So needless to say, I collared her up and sent her to the ER with her mom. She ended up not having that cervical instability and all the ligaments were okay. She did have a lot of laxity though, but things like that, you hear about those horror stories and it's important to make sure that you're clearing the cervical spine before you do anything else when it comes to having them do head shakes or full body rotations. Okay. So, um, they walk in, let's mm -hmm. break it down a little bit. They walk in, um, maybe they say my neck's bothering me. Maybe they say I had a concussion. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe they say my doctor just told me to come. I don't know why I'm here. Mm -hmm. What are the questions you have to hit? Subjective history, what are the questions you immediately go to in that instance? So asking about the mechanism of, his, of injury, okay. asking about things like um, did they lose consciousness? Why does that matter? Well, a lot of times there's different things that can indicate prolonged duration of symptoms or recovery. Loss of consciousness certainly is one of them, and it's just important to know that that time frame between and you know were they in a safe environment during that time who was around them but also an important one is knowing about immediate symptoms such as dizziness dizziness not that loss of consciousness is a good thing or not that seizures on the field or something more dramatic is a good thing but immediate dizziness is actually the biggest indicator of a prolonged recovery so asking about things like that um, history of 
um, eye issues, such as just wearing contacts, glasses, having a lazy eye. And you're asking that because it gives you somewhat of a baseline. Yes, yes. And you have an idea, you know, if someone had a history of strabismus or lazy eye needing their eye patched as a child, odds are that they could be a little more affected in terms of their ocular system after a concussion. Asking things such as a history of anxiety, ADHD, again, that puts them at a greater likelihood of all of those things being heightened after Mm -hmm. a concussion because that's essentially what a concussion does. Asking things like history of motion sickness, um, not just them with their family. Some of these questions are also relevant, such as migraines, history of migraines, not just them, but also of their family members. Because it just gives you a better color and mm-hmm. background as to what it is they might be dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's really important to highlight, to kind of figure out like, you know, where you go. And I, I relate this back to something I see way more of, knee pathology and questions to just give you a baseline of a knee pathology of, Mm -hmm. you know, have you had this before? Uh, What are things that have helped? Uh, What are things that bother it or symptomatic? It sounds like you go through the same thing. You're just dealing with the brain. Yeah. And similarly, similar to a knee pathology, it's important to know, do you have a history of this before? So a history of concussion is, could also be a big indicator particularly asking about were they rehabbed appropriately? Did they need rehab? And then if they did need rehab, did they actually get back to their baseline? Because a lot of times, you know, I saw a jujitsu, she had been a world champion and obviously you're getting hit in the head a good amount with the jujitsu and the MMA. And she had a history of like three different concussions, arguably in the last six months to a year. And when she was done with me, she had told me that she kind of felt back to normal, so she thought so, but it was not until after seeing me that she realized, you know, I was I was not myself the past year and I didn't even notice it. So it's important to definitely ask those questions when it comes to history of concussion and how long that they took to recover because um, that could very much affect the, again, the current treatment. Red flags that you're screening for when they walk in in the subjective include what? Definitely talking about just the Canadian cervical spine rules, so midline tenderness. Give me those. Talk to me like I'm a moron. What does that mean? (laughs) So you talk about like midline tenderness, inability to to rotate their head more than 45 degrees in each direction. I talk about the feelings of head heaviness. That one's sort of off to the side, but talking about that cervical instability of that C1, C2, that ligament. Also talking about... The mechanism of injury, was it a traumatic, was it a fall of a certain height, different things like that? Was it more of a fall just standing up or was it falling off a ladder? Because all of that puts them at a greater likelihood of needing imaging. Okay. And um, that's one of the things you're screening for. Yes. Do I need to get this athlete mm-hmm. some imaging? Okay. Definitely. Okay. Any other red flags when they come in, you're saying, let's go to an ER? Definitely looking at... And I guess some of this may be in the exam, looking at their pupil symmetry, if I'm going a little more in the cranial nerves, and they talk about different senses when it comes to um, eyesight, having like a really debilitating headache that doesn't change with anything, um, different, different things like that, bilateral numbness and tingling. I mean, you'd be surprised what some of these people can come in with. And again, like the spidey senses are tingling. It's like when in doubt, you need to make sure, especially with that numbness, especially with the bilateral symptoms, feelings of head heaviness. Um, You're referring out right away? Yeah. Okay. Probably. You're driving them to the ER? You're calling your buddy who's a doctor? I'm collaring them up. And if if they have someone with them, depending on the situation, I may have that person, if there's a close hospital, drive them. But... Fortunately, I haven't had to do this, but technically the protocol is collar them up and call the, you know, emergency, emergency people to get there and pick them up. Okay. Outstanding. I love kind of just crossing that off. You know, there, there's so many different types of physical therapists that are listening mm-hmm. to this pod. So just giving a baseline of you know, like, when do you push the panic button? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I have found is that you're never doing wrong by pushing that panic button. And that's why it's so important when I say panic button to have an awesome network mm-hmm. of providers. And we'll get into that, like how important that is to, to develop that. So you mm-hmm. can lean on some of these other health professionals. You get through that subjective. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to cover in your subjective as you're talking to this athlete? Um, uh, big things are 
going to the behavioral and the psychological, like asking about things, how are you feeling? Have you felt, don't think that you are making that person worse or more depressed by asking them if they feel depressed or sad or anxious. A lot of times they want to talk about it and haven't. Asking about their support at home, asking about things like, are they avoiding busy environments? Are they avoiding quick head movements? Are they driving? Are they doing things that allow them to be with people or are they doing things that are isolating themselves and probably making them more anxious and a little more depressed? So it's important like those behavioral components, like I said, even if I didn't give them a VOR exercise, even if I didn't give them something to address convergence, if they had issues, I could just end up giving that person behavioral references. I could give them behavioral things to work on to just allow them to slowly reincorporate themselves into daily life. Cause you got to treat the entire athlete. Yes. Um, so I think, yes. I think that's a great point. Uh, a recent concussion case that you and I collaborated on was a heavy part was, was that behavioral psycho-emotional piece, yes. um, which I already started seeing clues of before I met the athlete. And so the mom called me about 17 times saying yeah. like, Hey, uh, this athlete hit her head however long or she's still having symptoms. Uh, when do you think she can play? And just immediately down that road. So when I got into talking to the athlete, I already had an idea of what I would see. It did happen to be a big piece of what we were dealing with. I think once I referred that patient over to you, you did an unbelievable job of diving into that. And you're right. In that case, that athlete really did want to talk about that stuff mm-hmm. once it was addressed. Um, I think the way I opened that conversation with them, right, or you'll tell me if it was right or wrong, was like, I'm not going to have a filter during this conversation. We need to address some of the things that are not physical yeah. in, in this pathology, in this presentation. Um, and at first, that athlete was taken aback, but it, it really actually like ingratiated myself to her, I think, and just had her buy into what we yeah. can do for her. So I think that, that's a big piece. Um, so it's awesome that you put that as a part of your evaluation. Um, now, once you get towards objective testing... Mm-hmm. So again, looking at the cervical spine first, like we talked about. How do you do it? Uh, again, just in general, making sure that you have things like the ligamentous testing, clearing things like the sharp, sharp cursor. cursor yep. What else? Looking at the transverse ligaments. Love it. Um, having them do just active range of motion. I make sure that I have them do active before I go and do passive and try to move their neck for them. Otherwise, just palpation, seeing what are the tight muscles. Are they holding their head in a certain way? Do you see increased tone? All of that's very important. And again, I try to do it to where I don't have them constantly going sanding to lying down to sitting. So some of the cervical exam may be later too when I'm just doing general mobility stuff. So I try to keep them positionally, um, even though that's in the technically the first thing I would do with them upright and sitting. You make a good point though. The way to do that properly is to prepare. Mm-hmm. And so get organized you know you're gonna have a concussion walking in maybe you know that or or maybe you just know that you have a new evaluation you're not sure what it is you should have your concussion protocol at least in your head maybe somewhere in your notebook i got to get through these tests Mm -hmm. here's when i should do them especially when it's immediately post concussion or post trauma you want to be as organized and tight as possible so you can get through stuff so that's it that's a great point how soon do you want to see them after concussion i Honestly, as as quickly as possible, as quickly as they deem appropriate, since I see a lot of post-concussion, normally it ends up being a couple weeks that someone's been out when they come in to see me. A lot of times if someone's acute, you almost want to see, since a lot of concussions end up resolving within seven to 10 days, some of the symptoms. And that's not to say someone immediately goes back into that sport, but that's when they can start getting to that higher level activity. So sometimes... I end up sending, seeing people, like I said, more like two weeks out or even, I mean, to be fair, some people I've seen years out. Who but you want to symptoms. see them right yes. away. Yeah. You do want to see them, them right away next day. Honestly, probably. Yeah. Great. Um, I was amazed to see 30% of concussion symptoms, 30% of all concussions, their symptoms last longer than a month. So I'm not surprised that you're seeing them mm-hmm. so much later. And so once, if they're coming in that early, you get through your subjective, rule out your red flags, you've looked at the cervical spine, Mm because that's where you kind of want to start. Now, where do we go? Then looking at the ocular component of it, so resting alignment. And again, this all goes hand in hand with me asking before, 
Do you have contacts and glasses? Do you have them with you? You would be surprised. I just had a patient, actually have her right now, who her contacts have made some of her headaches worse, so she wasn't even wearing them in the eval. So some of it, it's going to affect my exam later on, and it may affect, too, some of her head tilts, resting alignments, and how she's tracking and looking around at the environment, so it's important to know. Also things like you know special tests, you talk about head thrust, looking to see if there is a vestibular hypofunction, if they have that eye catch-up when you're rotating their head quickly to center. Are we there already? Huh? Are we already in that part of the exam? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so resting alignment. Well, walk me through how you do it because you're, you're the freaking expert. So okay. resting alignment, you're looking at how they're um, kind of sitting, how they're holding their posture. Then what are you doing? Then a part of the... A part of it can be tracking. There's the VOMS, the vestibular ocular motor screening. Uh, a lot of people don't know about it. Some some do, but basically they're saccades, so quick eye movements back and forth. There's smooth pursuits, tracking. Then there's other pieces of it like convergence. How do the eyes work together? So some of that I also do. Um, so you go to ocular much, motor. Pretty much right on, okay. right on around that time. But like I said, there's also things like the head thrust, there's um, the dynamic visual acuity. acuity. Well, I, um, I'll have some of those like eye charts that they have at different like ophthalmology or optometrists. And I'll do, I'll have them do head shakes as they try to read to the lowest line possible. And if that ends up being a different line than what they can read at resting, if there's greater than like a two line increase, then that means that they can also have some ocular deficits. So again, some of it is according to positionally, um, not having them go too much up and down side to side with the positions, but uh, definitely alignments, looking at smooth pursuits, quick eye movements, slow eye movements, adding in the eye chart if I think it's important with the head shakes. But some of it, if, if someone's really hyped up and the quick head movements are causing a lot of symptoms, I'm probably not going to have them do know. it. So some of yeah. it depends on those current symptoms. And I think that's where rookie, that's the difference between rookie and being a seasoned expert. Understand, oh, why am I doing these tests? I think early on coming out of school, and this is true for any pathology that I would treat, I just had this lit, massive list. Yeah. I'm like, I got to get through this. I got to do Hawkins Kennedy. I got to do near. I got to do like all this stuff for the yeah. shoulder. You're looking at me like, oh, why would I do that for concussion? I'm talking about shoulder. No, I, yeah. yeah uh, when, when you look at it for the shoulder, it, that's not the case. It's all, all about being a sniper with mm -hmm. your testing, right? Don't be a carpet bomber. Mm -hmm. Be a sniper. Get to the point so that you can diagnose it create a baseline and then you come back and retest it sounds like it's the exact same with concussion another thing that you're saying that resonates with me is that evaluation starts the second you hear from that patient mm -hmm. right the second you see them in the waiting room and you walk them back you're already starting to yeah. gather data so that definitely resonates with me oculomotor mm -hmm. then going into balance um, balance. There's the best test. There's the modified sit sib. What do you um, love? You're the expert. Best, what do you love? The best test. I like the modified sit sib because normally that's best test is best for less than 72 hours after injury. Some more acute injuries. The modified sit sib is more for prolonged recovery and further out a little more accurate when it comes to that but you can also do things like the dgi the fga more dynamic dynamic stability a lot of times i end up doing the static stuff first since i'm going to be looking at some other things as well and normally when i see people they're pretty hyped up so again i'm looking at a bunch of different things i'm not necessarily trying to have them walk with head movements and negotiating obstacles right away. And so if they can't do the static, they're going to struggle with the dynamic. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's like a walk before you before you run. Thing. So you got to start with your static testing. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. They look really good there. Okay, now you move towards more dynamic testing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. outstanding. Then and that's all that's balance. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's seemingly it's convergence with with oculomotor. Anything any other tests you're moving through? So then going into the vestibular phase. So again, the VOMS testing, there's the smooth pursuit, the saccades, the convergence, but then you're also going into VOR times one horizontal and vertical. So that's the vestibulocular reflex. It's basically showing one's ability to maintain uh, 
clarity of one object as they're moving their head side to side. So that's important to look at because almost all the time, those are one of the biggest issues that I see with people who come in with post-concussion syndrome. So you run them through that. Then visual motion sensitivity, which is also vestibular ocular reflex cancellation. So the ability to keep something clear as you rotate everything at once. Also looking at that. And those two are the, the big vestibular ones that you're continuing with. And it sounds like those are going to guide some of your interventions, mm -hmm. right? Tell me how. Yeah. I mean, some of those can literally be the first interventions. Um, you don't need a lot, a lot of times to do some basic vestibular exercises. I mean, I straight up go to Michael's, I get some things and do arts and crafts basically where I have popsicle sticks. I use 14 point font, which is what you're supposed to use according to research for convergence and for any vestibular ocular reflex. I tape it on a popsicle stick and then I give them one and have them do things like quick head movements, like convergence. I always tell them, Focusing on a point, quick head movements. Yes, okay. and then convergence is obviously they're bringing it in and out, trying to make sure that they're keeping not not just clarity, but that object as one object. Um, I, I tell patients a lot of times that my job is the easiest in the beginning because I give them things that they're bad at. It's just a matter of finding a threshold of symptoms that we use to challenge them, but not kill them and not make them have headaches for the rest of the day or make them so dizzy that they throw up, nothing dramatic like that. But having them do things that bother them create some of those symptoms, but then having the knowledge and the idea that if it gets beyond a certain threshold, say like a six out of 10 severity of symptoms, uh, having them ease back and then assuming that everything calms down, they go back to baseline, having them go right back into it. I'm smiling because it sounds like you're summing up where our field has yeah. gone mm -hmm. as a whole. And I think mm -hmm. that's changed since I've been out from PT school, both with patellar tendonitis mm -hmm. as well as concussion care. Yeah. Like dip your foot, dip your toe into the pool of symptoms mm -hmm. and then take yourself back out and yeah. you're going to get accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's desensitization. Essentially, the exposed recover method is now more research-based, and I think we're getting out of the old paradigm of thinking where symptoms are bad and, you know, things are getting worse, and that's that's not the case. It's, it's like to get back to things that you want to be good at and normal things, you have to start doing the things to practice them and things that are make you go back to normal. So you can't just keep Shut adjusting the environment to you and expect to get better. You can't just continue dimming lights and turning down brightness on your phone and expect to suddenly wake up one day and be able to, to tolerate those things. So yeah. that's, that's a big education piece that I give people once I start to give them these, these interventions, because some of them, you know, I give them the tests for the VOR, I'm looking at them and they're like, Oh my gosh, it's terrible. And then essentially I'm telling them, all right, we're going to do it. And they look at me like, uh, like, are you serious? Are you, are you trying to kill me? And that's where I, you have to give the educational piece about the importance of desensitizing their system, the exposed recovery piece, making sure that they have an understanding of that threshold. And I just tell them, you know, you will get better. Like if, if you do this stuff in combination, if I think you need other disciplines to help, that's also, you know, I stay in my lane. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. But if people do that and truly have those hypersensitivities, they get better if they do it, like guaranteed. Um, so that's, it's good, like you said, to have that patient buy-in, whether it's psychologically, like when you talk to your patient that we, sh that we shared, but also talking about their physical symptoms that they're experiencing. So coming out, uh, those are all great points, coming out of that portion of your evaluation, is there anything else you, you need to hit on day one? Um, you like to hit those are the, I feel like those are the, the big ones when it comes to more objective measures. Uh, but a big thing is the behavioral changes. So some of that we touch upon when I listen to their subjective, but especially at the end, when I ask about things like avoidance behaviors, when I ask if how someone feels going into a Costco or a target, some of them either tell me that they go in and they feel good for five minutes and then they leave because they get symptoms. Or some people tell me 
I hate it. I don't go. So some of the things are behavioral. I tell them, go to Target, take someone with you, buy a nice shirt, see, see how long you can tolerate that environment. Once your symptoms get up to that six out of 10, that same threshold, go to the bathroom, go outside of the store. But once it goes down, go right back into it, making sure that they are walking at least 20 minutes a day, maybe having them start in a more quieter environment and then having them go to something like a busier park, understanding those those behavioral components, maybe even some mindfulness. There are different apps that you can use uh, that I heard about when I was with Lenore Hergrid at MGH. She had, she had some good apps that she gave people that were essentially like phone games that you can do that help with ocular movements and tracking mindfulness there are different like i said behavioral strategies to use and sometimes those in and of themselves make a game changer huge difference so you're addressing it sounds like the emotional component to the best of our training and mm-hmm. ability you're addressing behavioral mm-hmm. um you're addressing the physical with mm-hmm. some of that ocular motor stuff anything mm-hmm. else and and as well as with tolerance right mm-hmm. tolerant activity tolerance training mm-hmm. um so t- touch on that because i think that's a that's a piece that we haven't necessarily hit are you diving into heart rate measuring or how do you coach them on their exercise and physical tolerance normally when it comes to formal exertion testing i normally don't do that the okay. first appointment unless that's something that's specified and someone has had other components looked at that because of the type of testing that I go through, it normally ends up taking a, a whole session. Mm-hmm. So I wait a little and just have them focus on the smaller but important details. Um, but when it comes to activity intolerance, I keep it all like that six out of 10, that six, seven out of 10, whether cool. it's effort, whether it's symptom level, that's kind of money. And I may adjust that based on the individual because you have some people who maybe don't aren't willing to accept their symptoms as well and try to push through. And for them, I may say a lower threshold for people who are a little more fragile with their symptoms. I may say like seven out of 10 is okay, but the walking, biking, things like that, all of the exertion components, maybe things like running probably aren't good right away because you have that head up and down movement. But I mean, them getting their heart rate up, that physical activity is a huge, huge contributor to concussion recovery. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it sounds like you're really trying to meet that patient where they are mm-hmm. and get a feel for the way they translate pain yeah. levels, so symptoms, things like that. Um, a, a wise orthopedist once said to me, he'll look at a knee, come back in to mm-hmm. see him, and he'll see the way that that patient is walking. If they are super ginger, coming out of a mm-hmm. surgery and too protective, he throws them up on the table, you know, slaps the brace off and, and really is aggressive with it to mm-hmm. show that patient, hey, you can move versus he has someone come in, there's no brace, they're supposed to be non-weight bearing, they're kind of just sauntering in, he'll treat that thing like it's made out of glass. Yeah. It sounds like you're doing something very similar just mm-hmm. to relate to that patient and have feel for the way they are. Yeah. And thinking about the opposite end of the spectrum as well, I know I know I didn't touch upon this sleep hygiene and health there, um, making sure that they're being active, making sure they understand things like we don't want excessive napping. We don't want you it's we don't want to say sleep deprivation to an extent, but a lot of times people with concussion, they have issues falling asleep, staying asleep, and it, it doesn't help with any of their other symptoms, doesn't help with them having energy to do things like exertion activities. So having them understand how to return to their normal sleep hygiene, I just keep telling people, if you want to get back to your normal self, you have to start doing things that your normal self did. Get back on schedule. Yeah, and things like, even if it does feel like sleep deprivation at the time, even if they really want to nap and they're exhausted the rest of the day because they don't make themselves, they don't allow themselves to have one, odds are it's going to be easy falling asleep that night and that'll help to reset their system a little more. So it's it's important to know things like when to push themselves, but it's also important to educate them on how to rest. Yeah. And to not just rest whenever they want and to not always just listen to their symptoms and nap throughout the day, but to 
understands the importance of sleep hygiene and returning to their normal sleeping pattern. There's so much that yeah. goes into this injury, right? So boil it down, coming out of that evaluation, what are the three most important things you're trying to get across to this patient? Basically that the education that concussions, there's no structural damage. Nothing is showing up on imaging. There's nothing wrong going on in your brain. Your brain is just, I just say, freaking out, right? There's just a lot of things. A poke becomes a punch. It's working harder and not as much as being done. So they need to understand first and foremost that symptoms are not a bad thing. Nothing bad is happening, but it has to be kept within a threshold. That's great. I, I don't think that's stressed enough. Okay, so yeah. that's one thing you're relating in terms of your education. Yes. In terms of home exercises, how many are you giving them mm -hmm. um, would be, I think, the second piece that I want to hear from you as you wrap that session up. Yeah. So some of it depends on the deficits that I see. So if I'm having them do tracking and I'm having them do convergence and the how they look and the subjective and the numbers are normal, I'm not going to give them ocular things. But a lot of times people can come in and they have convergence deficits where you know, normally someone should be able to bring it in within five centimeters and then maybe it can double, but anything six centimeters and beyond, if the object doubles before then, that's not considered within baseline. So if someone comes out of convergence and maybe they get a normal value, but their headache is crazy and their dizziness is crazy, then convergence, a lot of times I'll start with, like I said, the popsicle stick with the 14 point font on from it. Michaels. Yes. From Michaels, of course. My Sponsor of the show, my, actually. Yes, Michaels. My, my beautiful arts and crafts. Yes. And then also, um, compliments to Michaels. There's also something with called a Brock string. It's just, I'll get some yarn and then put beads on it between three and six beads. And that helps them to hold it up to their nose, attach it to a different object that's stationary and try to focus in on each bead where if they're able to focus in on one bead and make it one, everything else splits. So again, you're working on conversions just at different phases versus with a popsicle stick. It's that whole smart. time coming in and out. It's really smart. So, okay, so that's dealing with the oculomotor mm -hmm. stuff. So you're giving them maybe an exercise for oculomotor, mm -hmm. maybe a balance exercise. If there's a deficit, you know, you're trying to uh -huh. just, how many exercises do you think you want to give them? Three. 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 Um, and then if that is dealing with the education piece, if that is dealing with um, their deficits as they presented in session, is there one more piece that you want to hit at the end of the session to wrap up that evaluation? Are you, are you good? Like I said, talk, I guess the, the education piece, either like maybe two or three of whether it's the ocular vestibular balance. And then at the end, talking about making sure like the sleep hygiene, the walking, Again, again, behavioral things, but making sure that those are clear. Normally, it's things that I touch on are the normal sleep hygiene and the walking every day. Sounds like if, sleep's important. Yes. Okay. And then if they have a lot of anxiety, different breathing techniques as well. Okay. When are you seeing them again? How do you wrap that up? In the beginning, I... I think a lot of people like being seen twice a week, maybe in the first couple weeks, because there can be a good amount of changes in those first weeks, especially if you're talking about cervical components and a lot of neck hypomobility, that might be someone that I want to see more regularly. Because, because you want to work on them? Yes. Okay. Yes. Do, Some, doing hands-on stuff. Yeah. And dry needling. Dry needling can be very helpful with certain headache patterns if they're coming from the neck. So that might be someone that I see for sure twice a week for a couple weeks moving forward forward but a lot of times because it takes time to desensitize the body i'll only recommend seeing them once a week unless they have you know unless they're opposed to it for most of our sessions um, because like i said assuming that they're doing things on their own it takes time to desensitize the body so if i see them you know, on a Tuesday and then a Thursday, how much time are they really getting in between to work on their stuff enough to make sure that they're getting desensitized to it? So I want to give that person more time to work on things because it, it takes time. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you what you're great at is, is staying in contact with your mm -hmm. patients, having them text you or, or working through our True Sports app, our home exercise yeah. app, just to understand how, hey, this is too easy. How would you progress it? Mm -hmm. 
and vice versa, this is killing me. Yeah. How, how do you scale it? Um, that, that, that's a really good education piece. And then as you take them all the way through and, and their symptoms start resolving, mm-hmm. hopefully, what do those sessions start to look like further away from that evaluation call at four weeks of care? Okay, so we'll, let's say that someone has ocular and, you know, ocular issues, like issues focusing on something and tracking something and then issues with quick head movements. So if those start to resolve, then I start to do them together and then I start to do them with that person walking more, making things go more dynamic in movements. So having them do the quick head movements back and forth, if they can do that statically, have them do it with forward backward walking. If they can do it with forward backward walking, have them do it with, I call them boxer dodges underneath a larger hurdle, boxing and doing the movement up and down as they're tracking something and zooming in on something and moving their head side to side, have them do planks while moving their head side to side and focusing on an object. You can combine those in a variety of ways. So a lot of times just adding the dynamic components and then adding exertion components and raising their heart rate whenever you're able to. I love this because it's like you're being a strength coach for the brain. Mm -hmm. And so understanding what the brain has to go through, activity specific, Mm -hmm. beginning to to get into that Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense uh, and is is a really great pull on our education as PTs. So Mm -hmm. use that and be prepared to play with those factors. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, That makes a lot of sense. That hits home for me. Talk to me about neck strength and how important it is or not important it is. Does it help prevent concussions? And how important is it for uh, rehabbing concussions? Very important. Um, not that there's different ideas on why. So actually, concussions, one of the few things where being younger is not a good thing. People who are young actually have a greater likelihood of having a longer recovery. Why do you think that is? Some people say it's because of neck strength and different, you know, synapse formations, just general maturity of the brain. But that's also people look at females and say, why do females get more concussions than men on average? And a lot of times they say the neck strength. So it's hugely important. Um, Sometimes in the beginning, I'll do some of the classic chin tucks, making sure that they have an understanding of how to activate those deep neck flexors and how to make sure they're maintaining appropriate cervical alignment. Because a lot of times you would be surprised at how some people move their necks after having something like a concussion. I would not be surprised. Yeah. Also looking at proprioception, I have a little like vestibular maze and it's kind of goofy, but you have a headband and it has a laser on it and you have this person go through the maze with the laser, it is so hard and frustrating. And you can tell the difference someone who has the cervicogenic dizziness or issues with cervical proprioception, they'll be all over the place or it'll take two hours to go through like half of the maze. So having them do things like that, making sure that they have an awareness of that, you know, where their neck is in space. And then also then going into a little more aggressive treatment, banded, uh, neck resistance, side bending, making sure they're doing chin tucks with and without resistance in anti-gravity positions as well as standing positions. So it's it's hugely important. Do we know that stronger necks decrease the incidence of concussions? It definitely it definitely seems to be that way. I feel like some people keep saying, "Oh, well maybe females get it more than males because of XYZ." But a lot of times I feel like the more and more research is coming out, definitely neck strength has a big influence on decrease in likelihood of concussion. Uh, I work with an NFL fullback who, when talking about his workout routine, he said this as if it's totally normal. He has a leg day in the gym, Mm -hmm. an arm day in the gym, then he has a neck day in the gym, and then I'm like, what? Yeah. He's like, yeah, I got to do all my Mm -hmm. neck stuff. So, and the guy's never had a concussion, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, it's an N of one, but that is fascinating to to Mm kind of think about. You think we should be doing more neck strength as a, if if you were talking to strength coaches? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, that's something that. How do you program that? When is that put in? So I, I, again, because it's kind of goofy to talk about, especially, you know, I had a 12 year old soccer player, female soccer player the other day, and she's looking at me like neck strength like she doesn't even lift at that point you know she's like I'm just gonna go and move my neck around a bunch but I just tell them 
couple times a week, two, three times a week, giving them a handful of exercise, whether it's banded, whether it's in combination with other exercises like planks, maybe some of the proprioceptive exercises as well, having a good idea of where their neck is in space. I mean, it, it, it's huge because especially football player, a soccer player going up for a header, you need so much stability, but then again, not just static stability, dynamic stability and force when you're doing things like heading a ball in midair, having to be aware of where the rest of your body is in space as well. So it's, it's hugely important. I definitely think that two to three times a week, not a ton of exercises, just some core ones would be hugely helpful. And I don't think they're emphasized or done enough unless it's at the professional or collegiate level. I think even then, I think it, it gets glossed over and you're talking to a guy with a really long neck. So I totally get it and a really weak neck. So um, I, I definitely think it's totally worthwhile and definitely glossed over. You've done an awesome job of really trying to include as much information here. You, you've mentioned and touched on so many different topics that I think people listening to this need to go back, listen, and just do deep dives on these like one-off tests that you maybe mentioned like in passing or, hey, I, I got to go through a sharp purser. Well, what is a good sharp purser and how do you do it appropriately? Because I think as we get into the sports world, unless you're specializing in concussion, you forget about this stuff. So I think uh, it's just important to like take a step back and dive into those specifics so you can be ready should that concussion walk in. What are some of the mistakes that you've seen, maybe you've made them yourself, in rehabbing concussions? Maybe so, you haven't made them yourself? I think. You probably haven't. No, never. never. I never make mistakes. Yeah. Definitely not. <laughs> um, big things are run, rushing through the past medical history. Again, I, I've said multiple times that I could not even put my hands on that individual. I could not do the VOMS at all. And as long as red flags are cleared, all I could do is talk to them. And right then and there, I could give them behavioral things. I could know that issues with quick head movements and focusing on something, I don't need to look at it with the VOMS. I can just automatically give them that exercise. So again, even if that means you spend literally the entire time talking to that person it's so important and in addition to the fact some of these people let me have let me correct issues. for one let me i just want to correct one thing yeah because i i don't think it's talking to the person mm -hmm. i think it's listening, listening yeah it's mm -hmm. listening to that person i know that's what that's what you meant yeah. um and and that could be the best session of their lives it could be totally uh game changing so okay so that's one mistake is we don't listen enough i think that's really true yeah. any other mistakes like jump jump out to you um, I've, I've mentioned it, the not assuming that all red flags and all of the potential issues like cervical instability, not assuming that those have been cleared by other health professionals, regardless of whether they've seen a neurologist or have gone to the ER, it doesn't mean that everything is clear and that you don't need to, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's. Also n making sure that you have that person understand that symptoms are not bad. They just need to be kept within a certain threshold. doesn't mean that anything is worsening or that any structural things are happening in the brain. They just need to be handled appropriately. And also recognizing, especially in sports concussions, that different athletes have different demands in their sport when it comes to ocular tracking, quick head movements. A baseball catcher needs to have a lot of visual acuity, heightened visual acuity, and those vision demands, considering he's catching 100 plus mile an hour baseballs, then, you know, a soccer player. And not that, not that that soccer player shouldn't also have very good rehab, but there are some crazy things that I've done with baseball players to make sure that they have that endurance with really, really consistently fast paced things that they need to track. And, you know, you talk about Soccer players, you need to make sure even more so than maybe a baseball player that you're looking at neck strength and understanding proper technique with things like heading the ball. So you need to make sure that you recognize the different demands that a different athlete has in their sport because that there could be one movement that makes a big difference if that athlete has to do it repeatedly over their sport. And if you don't find it, then they're always going to have a little bit of a deficit. And a lot of times that's what I saw with some of the people that end up coming to me is they're such high level athletes. They cleared all the standard objective tests, you know, being able to do this at 180 beats per minute, 
being able to do this at you know 50 beats per minute there's all of these standard values but athletes need they ain't standard yeah they ain't standard and that's what i think makes a great sports pt Mm -hmm. is understanding it it's funny when i was preparing for this conversation i was thinking to myself how the hell did pts how this become a specialty of ours right but as you talk it makes total sense just understanding the demand that a patient needs to go through with a sports pt it's just that on steroids understanding the insane demands that these elite level athletes or athletes in general need to go through and then pairing our intervention to match that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. What do you think a PT clinic needs in house to treat a concussion? Well, toys, um, equipment, what do you think we need? Like I said before, most of my, some of my, baseline concussion exercises i can go to michael's and do arts and crafts popsicle sticks print out some little squares of paper with 14 point font on them there's there are things if you google it called heart charts where you can it's basically a sequence of different letters multiple lines of it and that can help them to work on tracking heart focusing h-a-r-t heart charts there are big ones and there are small ones you can just print them off pretty easily Love it. put the near one on a popsicle stick and again it can be a progression once they get good with one letter have them do it while reading side to side and shaking their head back and forth. this is one of the things that I, that I love hearing because you know putting on the the business owner mindset mm-hmm. what do you have to buy you don't have to buy that much you have to invest so heavily outside of the education which is now free through the true sports pt podcast right and and you can really develop a niche within this practice so i think that goes both ways business owners that are listening to this this makes a lot of sense to wrap your arms around sports pts that are dying to create this specialty turn to your to your business owners and say this is easy Mm -hmm. it's not a huge investment is there one massive investment treadmill you said you love (laughs) okay there are, so again, I use things, and I use these regularly because I see a, a good amount of them. The vestibular maze, like the giant maze on the wall, I mean, that would be something you pay for. The headlamp, I think that was like $25 off Amazon. Okay, but I'm not buying yeah. an Alter G. No. no Is there anything over 100 bucks? Besides a treadmill, that would yeah. be ideal. Not, not that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, that's awesome to hear. I'll tell you what you did educate me tremendously on is aside from equipment, the network. Mm-hmm. So who do you need to meet that can help these patients? So big thing is uh, neuropsychologists are normally the first people that I would refer to if I think that this person needs just a little more look into the medical side of things. A lot of times they're the ones that look at impact testing. They have a little more knowledge of medications while also, again, the psychologist part, addressing the behavioral components neurologists are also very beneficial but a lot of times that's more imaging purely medication standpoint they don't look as much at at the behavioral piece um so very important when you need them but a lot of times i go neuropsychologist first and then they help me to see if a neurologist is required okay also a and this is hugely important a neurooptometrist a really good person who you can look to for assessing the eyes a little deeper. And some of this, you know, I say this as if you can just go and Google neurooptometrist. It's hard to find people who are good at what they do. How do you find them? Or, or what are you looking for? I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have different people that I trust who I've worked with in the past that I've that have told me some of the names, at least around here. It's all about the network, right? Or, yeah, it's all about the network. So some of it's who you know, who do you trust, who already has a little pre-existing network out here. But sometimes you have neurooptometrists who over-treat, who maybe give that person a little more of a crutch than they need. Some under-treat or just don't, some people just don't see concussions as much. Um, and that's where going to a general optometrist can also get you into trouble. It's not that these people are bad at their job, but just like a PT, just like a doctor, some people just don't see concussions as much. So it takes some shopping around. And I know that this neurooptometrist that I have a relationship with, I went on site and visited him and he showed me some of the things that- Give him a shout, what's his name? Uh, Keith Smithson. 
Keith Smithson. Keith Smithson. Hell of a doctor, I heard. Yeah. Okay, Northern, so... Northern Virginia Doctors of Optometry. Okay, and you found him just from your network, mm-hmm. and he sees a ton of concussion. Are there yes. any other medical providers that you want to keep in your back pocket? Names? No, no, no. Names of them specific, or, uh, yeah. Sorry. Um, psychologists and psychiatrists, like that behavioral management part, huge when it comes to, again, the emotional component, the anxiety, pre-existing depression, all of that, hugely important. And then not making sure that you're understanding the network that that person already has, whether it's an athletic trainer, a strength and conditioning coach, even like a PCP or just like a general sports med doc, you all need to be on the same page, especially the athletic trainers, the strength and conditioning coaches in that return to sport phase. If it's a college athlete and they're constantly going back and forth between their time with the athletic trainer and their time with me, it's concussions are very easy to treat quite differently depending on that person's training which is why communication is imperative right and and making that a part of your craft as a sports pt how do we communicate how often are we communicating how can we be as thorough as possible we need to get out of these silos and really start to communicate with all of these specialists because it's the patient who wins there um is there any surgical intervention here at any point and specifically i want to i want to dive into occipital neuralgia and yeah. stuff you've seen around that yeah i've heard of some more recently coming here occipital nerve ablations to be honest i had not seen anyone with that procedure done leading up to being here now in the last year but otherwise when it comes to surgical interventions i mean it to me, that would be if someone has more than a concussion. You know what I mean? That would be stuff that's done a little earlier on in the in the process. Yeah, I have seen some of that occipital neuralgia intervention. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen releases mm-hmm. of the nerve um, as as it exits the cranium. I've seen ablations, mm-hmm. like you spoke of. I've seen some of those. In, I've seen injections. Mm-hmm. Have you seen those? Not. Like Botox injections. Bo- Botox injections, I have. So yeah. I was th- thinking more of like surgeries. I didn't know if you meant no, like but surgeries versus procedures. Yeah, yeah. both. It's, it's a rookie podcaster question. <laughs> I didn't do a good job of clarifying. So I, I've seen both of those to interventions to differing levels of success. Mm-hmm. I've seen some of them go absolutely terribly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a piece of that was there it may not have been the right patient for that because I don't think that everything that you covered today was exa- was exhausted yeah. before that happened. So yeah. I think it's like with anything, you want to check those things off your box um, or off the list and, and just make sure that we're covering all of our bases. What's the future of concussion care? What are you really excited about that you think is coming out or, or being researched currently? A lot of, so I worked with UPMC concussion clinic when I was in Pittsburgh. So I got a lot of my teachings from there. Do they have a football team up in Pittsburgh? Huh? They have a football team in Pittsburgh? They do. They do. As a matter of fact. I haven't heard of them this year. Go ahead. (laughs) Oh man. Oh gosh. So many thoughts. Yes. Um, Please don't share them. Yes. UPMC, you were (laughs) saying. UPMC recently came out with exit testing. Uh, It's called exit testing. It's similar. There are different return to sport protocols that had been used. Uh, the Buffalo bike testing, Buffalo treadmill testing, basically looking at that threshold of cardio output or exertion that that person has before they start to get any symptoms with if they have a concussion actively. So the exit testing is a little more sports specific. Uh, you know, I had a head injury in the past that was actually treated through UPMC, and it's certainly more thorough than the exertion testing that I had done. And I'm excited to see more sports specific um, rehab coming out because I think like I mentioned earlier with some of the high level people that ended up coming to me because they got missed because they needed higher level care or needed to have higher level expectations and movements looked at that go well beyond just standard values. So they continue to have these lingering things that I think otherwise would have been caught if there was more thorough exertion return to sport testing. So I'm excited to see where that goes as things like the exit testing, the article on that comes out, 
Other things are being developed that can help people for prevention strategies as well, like neck strengthening. There's just a lot more education um, out there now and different resources. And there's hundreds of, you know, pieces of literature being put out each year about concussion. It's, it's reminds me of like ACL rehab in the muscular world, but there's just so much information coming out and it's overwhelming to an extent to try to keep on top of. But um, I'm excited to see how that continues to improve the efficiency of getting athletes back to where they want to be and making sure, I mean, to me, I kind of tell the person, me clearing you back to your sport is basically me saying that I feel comfortable with you getting hit in the head again, right? How, how do you do that? How do you clear your athletes for sport? I think it's something we, we haven't covered. So aside from a lot of different sport-specific movements that I have them doing and modified things that I have them do if they're working in a college setting with their athletic trainer, I run through the exit testing that I had done with UPMC. So the exit testing was developed by them. It has first and foremost a cardio component. Uh, Some do continuous cardio, some do more hit style cardio. It also has a bunch of rotational squatting components, has components that involve quick step up downs, shuffling while also focusing on a cone different directional reaction exercises, looking at line drills and sprints towards the end. So again, that's an example of something that I, I can appreciate the Buffalo treadmill or the Buffalo bike test, but that's very uniplanar, just looking more at the cardio, cardio piece. It doesn't look at the rotation piece. And some of that is where athletes can really get into trouble and furthermore, proprioception, there's a much greater risk of musculoskeletal injury, mm-hmm. particular lower extremity, even after someone gets cleared from a concussion. It gives you a score? It just gives you a score of readiness to return? You more so look at symptoms similar to, um, similar to when you're doing VOR exercises, but the big symptoms are dizziness, fogginess, um, nausea, and headache are the four main guys you look at. So, um, similar to the VOMS exam, which that's also something you look at. Those are some of the main, the main guys that you're tracking throughout their time, throughout the components that you are splitting up during that exit testing. That's really great. I think that's add that to your list of things that a clinic has to have is an understanding Mm -hmm. of that so that you can uh, release your athletes safely. You, you bring up the NFL and the way they deal with concussions. You talk about how far they've come and how they have this third body supposed to be clearing these athletes to return to sport that is independent Mm -hmm. from either team. It's crazy how far that's come. I'm of mind to think that it should be like that with every musculoskeletal injury. Mm -hmm. There should be an independent body to say this athlete is safe to return and they're not Mm -hmm. influenced by... The Steelers, and they're not influenced by the Bengals. They're just out there for the athlete. I think, I hope that eventually that's the future. I don't know that it could ever get there. That would be something I would be really excited about. Not that you asked, but I think that's why are we not there? Why are we not there? Because aren't those medical professionals for the team saying, you're good Mm -hmm. because they're on that team? Um, I think that would be something that would be super interesting that maybe we could get to. We should do a whole pod on that. I I think some of it too, and I know I mentioned mostly the symptoms, but the exit testing, I don't always do this. A lot of times I look at just perceived exertion, but you can get data like blood pressure and heart rate and changes like that depending on the person that you're working with. So I think the opportunity to have that more objective data and those changes over time could also help when it comes to like third party involvement and more standardized values. So uh, some of it may be that having more standard values and being able to trust other people doing, you know, running them through testing as well. Yeah. I love that. And and I bet you eventually it gets sports specific. Like you Mm -hmm. said, those demands are so unique. Lacrosse athlete, uh, pitcher, catcher, Mm -hmm. um, they're so unique. So, so getting better values around that, I think would be awesome. How do people find Dr. Chiesa so they can just learn more about concussion and what it's like to be an outstanding sports PT? So I work at the True Sports Columbia Clinic right by Howard High School, right down the street. 
that's mostly where I do all my treatment out of. So I'd be happy to give out my email or you know, give us your email, number. give us your social media. Yeah. How do they find you? So my email is Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E at truesportspt.com. And my Instagram handle is Chiesa, C-H-I-E-S-A, D-P-T. So you can find me on either of those. We will definitely list that. It's Chiesa, not Chiesa. Not cheese. No, it's great. Thank you for for pointing that out. (laughs) A a real wealth of knowledge. I think you do an unbelievable job of being such a pro and being as objective as possible, but also being subjective when necessary in evaluating and treating these athletes, specifically with concussion. So it's something that I've learned a tremendous about by having you on the squad, by having you as a piece of the pod um, has really been awesome. We're always also looking to improve. So um, we're totally open to feedback. We want to know who we should have on this podcast. Uh, reach us at pod at truesportspt.com. You can always reach me directly, Yoni, Y-O-N-I, at truesportspt.com. Kiaza, you've been awesome. Thank you so much for joining the True Sports PT Pod. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thanks for listening to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. If you'd like more information on today's episode, please visit us online at truesportspt.com. True Sports, what sports rehab should be.